halftime entertainment decided to play the Fields of Athen Rye, it's not exactly a rousing, rampaging, let's get the blood up for the second half song. No, our anthem is, isn't great. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. You're very welcome along to the Sunday Papers. Great to have you with us. Joe Malloy here. I will start with the back pages, as you can imagine. One man dominates and it's a fairly glum looking Ole Gunnar Solskjaer waving well, more apologising really to the Manchester United fans at Vicarage Road yesterday. So the Sunday World, first of all, it's that picture of Solskjaer. What a mess, Ole. Solskjaer's job hanging by a thread as Zidane is number one choice to be the next United boss. This after their 4-1 defeat uh, yesterday. The Sun, similar enough picture, Solskjaer at full time. Mutiny, board hold, crisis talks as fans turn on Ole. And beside that, cat eyes up feast of carbs. Cat being my cat, carbs being Joey Carberry this afternoon against Argentina. My cat hoping for a big Joey Carberry performance. Uh, Sunday Mirror then, what a farce. Solskjaer on the brink. And there's a picture of Bruno Fernandes as well, looking slightly shocked at the situation. And he did try to be fair to uh, appeal to the fans to boo all of us, not just Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at full time. That's how grim the situation was. And then we have the Mail on Sunday here, full picture of... Solskjaer, it's all a over. Solskjaer on brink after humiliation. Rogers, as in Brendan and Zidane, in the frame. And it's Joe Bernstein here. Olegunner Solskjaer's reign at Manchester United looks to be over after a humiliating 4-1 defeat at uh, Watford. The manager gave a farewell wave to fans at Vicarage Road yesterday. Sunday Independent then. Same picture of Olegunner Solskjaer. Game over for Ole. And then Miguel Delaney beneath the picture. United no longer a team fighting for their manager, barely a team at all. And uh, Miguel Delaney writes in his piece on the front page of the Sunday Independent that most of the squad feel it's done. Most, in truth, want it done. This is no longer a team fighting for their manager. And he does mention Bruno Fernandes did give a bit back to supporters, reproaching them for their response. But... uh, I think it's fairly obvious where things lie for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at the moment. And then the Sunday Times, embarrassing and unacceptable. This is David De Gea's quote. De Gea slams Man United after Watford defeat sinks another old Trafford boss. And uh, the De Gea quotes are quite instructive, really, where he says that we don't even know what to do with the ball. Now, very happy to say Dan McDonnell of the Irish Independent is with us in studio. Dan, great to have you in. Ciao. Sean McGoldrick of the Sunday World joins us as well. Hi, Sean. Uh, morning, lads. So I would say of the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer talk, Duncan Castles and Tom Roddy have lots of detail, for instance, on the Sunday Times. I mean, we can talk about this as if it's done. I suspect when lots of you are listening on Monday, it will be officially done at that stage. So uh, Duncan Castles, Tom Roddy here in the Sunday Times. Manchester United have decided to dismiss Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as manager. Emergency virtual board meeting was called by the Glazer family during the second half of the match. <laughs> And within the talks, which started at about 7pm last night, the group managing director, Richard Arnold, was instructed to negotiate the precise terms of Solskjaer's departure. And it's believed that Solskjaer will make £7.5 which is his annual uh, salary. He did sign a three-year contract in August, but his deal is understood to include a one-season compensation payment should he be sacked. Uh, Club officials have also been told to accelerate attempts to persuade Zinedine Zidane to take charge by increasing United's financial offer to the three-time Champions League winning coach. 
And there we are, Sean. The Ole Gunnar Solskjaer era is over. Yeah, I think uh, we can take that for granted. You all right? It's just a matter of uh, timing now. Uh, I suppose it's a hard one for Manchester United fans uh, to stomach because he was uh, the hero back in, uh, in the Champions League win in, in uh, 1999. And um, it's, uh, but I mean, it realistically has been coming for a long time. Uh, I suppose we have to go back to he was he, he was initially appointed as a caretaker manager. Uh, and nobody expected it uh, to last probably this long. But I think everybody agrees, um, uh, Manchester United fans and soccer pundits in general, that it's not really, uh, Solskjaer is not the problem with uh, Manchester United. And uh, I think Oliver Holt in the, in the mail today has a searing piece about the uh, the chairman, the vice, or the vice chairman, rather, Ed Woodward, and the managing director, Richard Arnold, and uh, suggest that they should follow him out the door. But I think there's one very relevant paragraph. Um, he says, the root of the problem is the Glacier family who own the club and the men like Woodward and Arnold, who they employ to do their bidding. They drain money from United like leeches. They fret more about profit than perf- and performance. They have turned United from a team that boasted of being the biggest in the, in the world into a laughing stock. And I think that really sums it up. Uh, I mean, Manchester, it's Ali Gunnar Solskjaer is not the problem of Manchester United. It's the way they have been managed uh, by the yeah. Glazer family over a long period. Yeah. Well, they've officially tweeted now and put out a statement Manchester United to confirm that he is gone. So the inevitable has happened and they uh, thank you for everything, Ole, is how they sign off in the tweet. So Solskjaer officially sacked. I mean, it was inevitable, really, that that news would come. This afternoon. On that point, by the way, that Ollie Holt makes, Sean, I read it and it's not to defend the Glazer family at all. So his argument is that the issue for Manchester United is the Glazers and that they're uh, draining money from Manchester United like leeches. They fret more about profit than performance. I accept that they're taking lots of money at the club. It is worth stating, though that Manchester United have spent more on the transfer market than virtually anybody over the last four or five years. And their wage bill currently is as big as any club worldwide. They have the biggest wage bill in the Premier League this year. It's ahead of Chelsea, it's ahead of Man City, Liverpool in fourth, Arsenal fifth, Spurs sixth, Everton seventh. Manchester United pay their players more than any other team in the Premier League. They're currently seventh, 12 points off the top. So Dan, there is a, the very popular line in Ali Holt, makes it here that they're draining money from the club. The reality is they're spending lots of money. It's more outright mismanagement and bad footballing decisions. Yeah, no, it's a bit of everything. I mean, it is like there's there's clearly there's no doubt that they've spent big, but I, I suppose some of the spending, you know, the, the certain targets that have been pers- pursued, yes, they've spent big on them, but to some degree was the sort of the commercial attractiveness of some of those targets sort of a factor in, in some of the decision-making pro- process as well too. So you can flip that both ways. I mean, I think, you know, like, I mean, this this statement that came out, I think it was about an hour or so ago, they, it, it came out, and, and the line about... Um, you know, Michael Carrick will now take charge of the team for the forthcoming games um, while the club looks to appoint an interim manager to the end of the season. So um, it's clear that they're going from stopgap to stopgap uh, in terms of their solution here and that generally, as you know, and, and most people are aware, you know, football is pretty cutthroat. You'll have a manager 
you know, sacked and the announcement sort of ready within 24 to 48 hours and you're meant to sort of think that all of a sudden they just rang them, you know, th- at the beginning of that day to get it all done where of course all this planning is, 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 is done in the background and they have something ready to go. But it appears to be clear that they don't have something ready to go here. Or if they do, um, they've decided to make a half decision. Um, and it just it just it doesn't exactly um, help uh, the, the defense of the Manchester United hierarchy as a sort of a functioning football operation. That sort of I mean, I think it was the Oliver Hall piece that referred to how. Um, sort of dithering around Solskjaer allowed them to lose Antonio Conte and now um, what this sort of stopgap plan what does this represent um, again I mean are they going to bring in someone on an interim basis after Carrick there was some suggestion in the papers I mean this is one of those ones where it's quite difficult because this was all breaking late last night so the story moves along and the papers are a moment in time frozen sometimes with these things and it's it's moved on quite quickly since then but there was a suggestion of Darren Fletcher um, being that sort of interim manager um, so we'll see what way that's going to pan out but either way they're not necessarily prepared for this even though I mean manager debate uh, around Solskjaer seems to have been going on almost interminably and yet they don't have that plan B ready that most clubs sort of would have ready to go Yeah that's embarrassing for them really because after the Liverpool defeat it was clear that they needed to start thinking that way and subsequent to that there's been the Manchester City defeat and then there's been a effectively two-week international window for them to come up with Michael Carrick and then we'll try and appoint another interim until the end of the season. So, Sean, that's disastrous. I mean, if they're not actually appointing a manager now to take over and to whip things into shape indefinitely, yeah, post Solskjaer, then it's an embarrassment. Like, to go to the end of the season isn't actually... I mean, they might as well stick with Solskjaer if they're just getting someone in until the end of the season. Yeah, well, I suppose the pressure on him had just become intolerable that, uh, you know, they, they didn't want uh, the fans booing and all that. But, I mean, as Dan said, I mean, this has been on the cards probably since the, for, for a long time, since the, the last and when the Europa League final thing last year or last season. Uh, and you would imagine that, uh, you know, a big business, I'm sure, plans for, they have succession stakes on the, and it's the same at Manchester United. So it is. Incredible that they're talking about appointing an interim manager again. Yeah, uh, but we'll see. We'll see how it pans out in the next uh, few days. I think the thing and is, I don't think the fans. I don't think the fans will be too happy with with another interim manager because they. I think they want a big a big name like Sudan to come in. The worst case scenario now is that Michael Carrick goes in a great winning streak. Oh, and then they'll, they'll give, <laughs> give it to give it to Carrick till the end of the season or <laughs> something like. You're sort of wondering all these sort of punchlines are are beginning to come out in real life again. I just think the stunning thing about it is Joe, like you, you sometimes assume that sort of people like with immense wealth, you know, in positions of authority, you assume that they 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 sort of possess some kind of uh, higher knowledge you know, or wisdom that sort of places them above, uh, you know, other layers of society. And they may have, like, accumulated wealth in their own business ventures, in their own life to allow them to get to that position of success. But it doesn't ever always translate to their ability to make decisions around sport, you know. And you're sort of, you're you're always wondering with some of this stuff that, no, we're eventually going to see this piece that comes out that will explain, no, the thinking behind this was this, you know, the thing behind X was Y and there was there was some plan there. But, you know, sometimes you just realise 
that that isn't the case. Oh, no. You know, you know, like I, I, I mean, I, I, can, I can always go local with this, but like for example, see the the American owners that have just left Dundalk Peak Six are a massively successful company in terms of like your billionaires, like founded from sort of nothing into like you know really really good at their jobs. Yet when it came to like you know making decisions around football, not good, yeah. not not good at all, and um. This is Manchester United, you know, which is the biggest or certainly most profitable, um, sort of potentially profitable operation in the world. And yet, I mean, the strategy decisions here, if you applied them to business, to their own life, and they, and they, they, they sort of ran their companies yeah. in the same way, they'd be at the door. I wonder if it has anything got to do with the fact that the Glazier's background is in American sport or an American football where... There's no such thing as relegation. Like clubs there uh, are franchised, go through lots, a whole lot of seasons and they don't because of the draft system. They don't necessarily figure in, in uh, you know, they don't win this, uh, the Super Bowl or, or go near win it every season. It doesn't seem to affect their commercial their commercial viability or their profit, profitability. So I wonder, is that the mindset they have, that they're just, if, if, if Manchester United, they see it as a kind of a corporate body, and once it's turning profit and obviously staying in the in the premiership, um, uh, they don't, uh, you know, whether they win trophies or not, maybe doesn't uh, seem to impact as much on them yeah. as it would on uh, as as we would view it from this side of the world. It's as good a theory as any. I'm more inclined to go with Dan's one of outright incompetence, I think. But uh, it's as good a theory as any. There is something in it. Like I think. Oh, I've I seen Succession, it's, Dan. It's, it's, They're not all smart people. No, but it's it's. Uh, I think with Sean, it's more of the Champions League. That was the, isn't that the feeling that once they qualify yeah. for the Champions League in the top four, they're fine. Yeah. Well, then it's just been, winning, not winning. Either way, we're yeah, winning. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, perhaps Sam Wallace takes the smarter route, as in um, in terms of not being dated this afternoon in the papers because he's already well made the correct assumption Solskjaer's gone so who is next and he writes about the enigma that is Zidane Zidane is the obvious choice but would he be the right fit giant of the game has all the qualities needed to make market Old Trafford so Wallace here opens by saying we are in the era of the great coaching brands the distinctive approaches that define the big men of the age the school of Guardiola Kloppism the Simeoneists the Tuchelites the small fervent church of Poch battling against the heretics. What is Zinedine Zidane, he asks, and what does he stand for? And I think it is a difficult question to answer because he's uh, managed to carve out a three-in-a-row Champions League winning career with Real Madrid, with largely the first 11 uh, remaining intact, like a school team, uh, Sam Wallace says, uh, albeit the most expensively assembled and lavishly rewarded school team in history. What those three Champions League trophies at Real Madrid mean, as well as uh, the two La Liga titles, is critical. And he's not entirely sure what it means. Uh, as a figure in football, Zidane's easily big enough for the throne of old Trafford's troubled kingdom. Yet at the same time, he feels a risk greater than appointing a solid Everton manager or an irascible Dutchman or Jose Mourinho and all his self-pity. He said, this should be easy. And yet he comes with so much uncertainty. Appointing him should be easy. Uh, Zidane, near perfect uh, resume, seems to get on Ronaldo, big French contingent. But he says, as a coach, he feels elusive. Even his press conferences in uh, Spanish, it's halting. His Real Madrid team barely changed across three seasons when they won those Champions Leagues. Uh, in those consecutive finals, he only used 13 different players, exceptional teams, blessed with Ronaldo at his peak. Sam notes in the 17-18 Liga season, they finished third in the traditional two-horse race, and yet they found fluency in the biggest competition of all. And so he's just not sure what you get when you get Zidane. 
Uh, first, mesmerising footballer who good with a single touch or flick make a defender feel like he'd arrived at the wrong stadium on the wrong day. Then a coach who achieved in three seasons a Champions League record that Ferguson never managed in three decades. It should be obvious what Zidane is and what he offers, but no one knows for sure. I think there is a bit of truth in that with Zidane. There is, yeah. And I think it's... Now, it is true, that I suppose, that so many of the, the modern managers in you reference, there is like that cult of personality around them or that cult of like what their football represents. You know, it's something ball. You know, I mean, like I think even the the Jim White piece next to it in the Sunday end was, you know, Solskjaer ball at its most loud. Everyone is now something ball. Do you know what I mean? Like, is there Dean Smith ball if you're at Norwich? Like, you know, like, but there is that whole sense of what does he stand for? But it may be, some people would take a, an approach that, well, you know, sometimes manager, you can overcomplicate it in your own mind and that he, at Real Madrid, had a very good squad, took the personalities and got them together. Although, as he points out, it was actually more in the Champions League that they delivered as opposed to domestic competition, that they just had something about the knockout formula. Now, if you go to the Bernabeu, like they're, they're obsessed with the the Champions League at Real Madrid even more so than domestic honours and he maybe was a manager that was custom fit to that uh, to that sort of specification for them um, so yeah the stat about how only in, in, the, in the consecutive finals of 2016, 2017, 18 that only 13 players featured in the three starting 11s is like quite something yeah. it is yeah and um, you could look at it and you could say um, well they have a lot of very good players at the club so maybe he is one who can come in and just deal with that. But the flip side of that is, you know, has their recruitment strategy been erratic in such a sense that, for example, like Jurgen Klopp, when he signed someone like Diego Jota initially, there was maybe some people going, well, he wasn't a massively high-profile player at Wolves, but clearly Klopp was aware, and Michael Edwards and whoever was involved with the recruitment, well, he would slot into their style and how they play. Yeah. I think the problem that Manchester United have at the moment is that they don't appear to have a real identity. They don't appear to have a way that they play and can you really compete with the other three sides without that? Um, now the one thing you would say, I, I, this is a timeless piece, but in some respects, you, you, you read this this latest statement about uh, well, a, an interim manager till the end of the season. It would appear that they're waiting for someone else. Now, if, Klopp, yeah, sorry, if Zidane is free at the moment, then what would be the obstacle to him oh, coming in? Oh, there is some suggestion. Family that aren't sure about, his wife isn't sure about maybe moving to Manchester. That was okay. being suggested. But I would have thought, wait until the end of the season. Are you waiting for Pochettino? Just you know, yeah. I just wonder he has to give it a year with PSG and all of that. But uh, if you're waiting till the end of the year, like if Zidane doesn't want it now, when is he ever going to want it? If you no, know it's I mean. true. Uh, one last point, by the way, and this is redundant ultimately by the fact that Solskjaer is gone. But De Gea, we don't know what to do with the ball, is in quite a few of the papers. So here in the Mail on Sunday, page seventy-three, what he was saying after the match was this was entirely on the players that uh, we need to show much more. It's easy to blame the manager, but it was an embarrassing first half. It was hard to watch the team playing today. It was nightmare after nightmare after nightmare. We don't know what to do with the ball. It's a horrible moment. We don't know how to defend as well. It's been going on a long time. Uh, sorry to the fans, naturally. Included of course. Yeah. Obligatory sorry wonder, to the fans. I wonder what his teammates think of that. Outburst. I know. I know. There's a degree of separation there. You know, we, do, we don't know what to do together. with the ball, although I'm the goalkeeper, so really that one's not on me. Uh, Sean, Roy Keane, the Roy Keane interview, pages 8, 9 and 10 of the Sunday Times. It's rare the Sunday Times go three pages for an interview. Often there's a degree of fighting for space, I suspect, although um, 
As David Walsh notes in his piece at a certain point, Roy Keane is box office and he mentions Gary Neville's The Overlap recently where Keane did that, in fairness, amazing interview. And Walsh notes the numbers. Harry Maguire's one got 1.38 million. Anthony Joshua, 1.4 million. Jamie Carragher, 1.5 million. Harry Kane, 1.7 million. So you can see that's about the norm. Roy Keane, 4.3 million. The only person that came close to him was uh, Tyson Fury, 2.27. But Keane was at 4.3. So... Uh, he is box office. So what is your take on this interview? Uh, it's, it's terrific. It's, it's, it's very enjoyable. I suppose it's, uh, it's, key, it's keen at his best and, and watch at his best as well. I mean, there's, there's so much nugget, or there's so many nuggets in it like um, that. Uh, uh, it's, it's just fascinating. And actually, just going back to the stall chair, the one dwell on, um, it gives an insight actually into a keen had been or has been criticised uh, as has other former uh, Manchester United players for not being critical enough of Solskjaer as a manager. But um, he tells a story about uh, when he had the bust up at Ferguson, when he left the club, and that um, there was a meeting, there was a team meeting, and he was asked he was asked to leave it. And then he says, the, or this is, the, this is Walsh, the conversation continued after he left, unable to stay while the now absent captain, that's Keane, was being spoken to Salcher and Paul Scholes rose to leave the room. Uh, Don't you follow him, the manager said to Salskar. The Norwegian kept walking. The following week, Keane was gone. So I think that's that gives an insight into uh, you know why Keane and he talks about it uh, a bit later on in the piece why he feels loyal to to Salcher in particular. Although it's interesting, so he's, he's, it's interesting. He says he had forgotten that Salskar got up and walked out of the room when Keane was being spoken about after Keane had left the room. Until uh, yeah. Walsh reminded him of it. I dare say Keane, Keane might have remembered <laughs> if Solskjaer uh, had obeyed the manager and turned and sat down. But um, he says, to be fair, you know, he couldn't have respected Solskjaer more anyway. It's not about one moment. It's about years together. But sorry, go on. What else What else jumped out to you about this? Yeah, there was another, another little uh, anecdote about you know, the fam- or how that his family don't take him that seriously. And he, he says that um, he sometimes cracks a joke, you know, with his kids that if if himself and his wife split up, who the kids would go to. So he says, I, I say for a laugh, kids, if we slip, if we split up, uh, who would you go with? And they all are, I'm not going with you anyway. <clears throat> we don't even want to go uh, on the ferry with you. And that's, um, he, he goes, he talks about going on the ferry back to Cork, uh, you know, with the car on his own. Uh, and then the last line of that piece is, and I'm going, I don't want you anyway. I'll take the dogs. I look over and the dogs are shaking their heads. No, hmm. I think it's, it's, um, uh, there are just two gems in it, but it is definitely worth the read. Uh, I mean, I suppose dad will empathize with this and, and yourself to, to a lesser extent, Joe, we, we interview lots of, uh, lots of players and most of them you'd probably nod off, particularly GA players. Uh, you nod off to sleep. Uh, you know, they're so, so humdrum, you know, well, every journalist worth his salt would love to sit down with, with Keane for half an hour and, and just if he's in that mood he's just absolutely he's yeah he has he's one of the best around he's 50 now been in Manchester 32 years is Manchester home for my wife and children it is not for me why not Cork is home but I don't live in Cork I'm still drifting and further to Sean's point, he says, I've always been way down the pecking order in my house in terms of decisions. I mean, way down. I'm just above the German shepherd, but maybe I'm closer than maybe that's closer than even I think. She comes to me at 10 o'clock in the morning and I say, are we going for a walk? Even the dog's telling me what we're doing. 
And on the house and leaving the house, he says, basically over my dead body. I hate saying this, but it's more than house to us. I argue with myself. It's bricks and mortar. That's all. But there's something about it. It's homely. We love our home. If I'm not out doing a bit of TV, I'm sitting there with my shorts on, feet up. Ah, we love it. That's one of the benefits of having a few bob. You can do it up nice. That's um, a large part of the interview, Dan, I would say. It's the, um, well, there's something very familiar about, I suppose, the patriarch who really is not the boss of anyone in his own home, but loves sitting there amongst his family and gets great joy out of his kids. And I suspect, King, you see him on Instagram as well, his grandchildren as well and the dogs. And I fully do, I fully believe him that that's where he's by a distance at his happiest, that sense of yeah, calm. Walsh says he feels just so protected in his home. You do get that sense with Roy Keane that that's where he can properly relax. Yeah, like you know, that that's one of the benefits of having a few bob. You can do it up nice, he says at one stage about a house because the theme running through the piece so much is 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 almost this theme of sort of Roy Keane and how he's almost everybody's property in some way. Mm. And 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 of course like Roy Keane has also monetized that strength as well too. I mean, when he goes into contract negotiations with Sky or whatever, you know, things like that 4.3 million people watching uh, his YouTube feed over the others. I mean, that brings a certain power. Yet, uh, in saying that, you sort of read through the piece and you almost see him trying to run away from that at times too. L- like a man who loves the, who, who wants masks to remain uh, around forever because actually they help him mm-hmm. in terms of his privacy. Like there's a, there's this section that's on the sort of the third page of it where he sort of speaks about his, his routine, you know, when he's going out somewhere and it's, it's actually italicised. You know, never forget the mask and cap. Work out where the car can be discreetly parked. If travelling by train, always book off peak. Pre-book a seat by the window that is one of two, not one of four. Never book a seat near a lavatory. Too many coming and going. When eating out, get a 6pm or 6.30pm booking. Fewer people. In restaurants, if possible, sit back to other diners. And as he mentions, he spends his whole life planning how to um, to escape people and, and there was that I, I mean I, I was reading this interview at first I'd love to know what the context for this is it's not he's not selling something you know it's not um, and I'm not even saying he's not selling something but sometimes you know, he would do events for say the guide dogs and there would be stuff around that but there, there's no hook there's no line at the bottom saying he was speaking as a, an ambassador for something or other um, and, and I, I you know it's brilliant for David Walsh to be able to get that sort of piece and clearly like he maybe wanted to address in some way that incident recently people would have seen that sort of again that viral clip of he being hassled outside the stadium by by some people and he talks through the context of it um, he actually mentions he's, he's leaving the game was it the Manchester Derby I think it was yeah? yeah and he forgot to put on his mask and cap so he got stopped by a couple of people um, and that led to a sort of a discussion Um like you know, it's 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 it seems like you know he he puts up with this on a sort of a regular uh, basis. He he actually mentions that he went back to the the Ireland New Zealand rugby game last weekend and only got recognised by someone once. Yes. He just said hi, Roy, and nodded, and that was the ultimate it, uh, uh, the ultimate compliment for him. Just leave on, leave me be. Mask on, cap on, and he said he can't uh, stare straight ahead. Just on, I'll just, I'll just jump in because I say people might be interested. Sorry, yeah. In what happened after that Derby game the other week and who knows as to his motivation for doing this interview Dan maybe it's to start playing the game a little bit and to be in the shop window because he does say if I sign another TV contract I'm giving up yeah we'll talk about that maybe in a second but, but yeah. what he says of the incident the other week which went viral says 
I'm signing autographs, usual stuff, no manners. Uh, this guy stops me. He's got two jerseys, dealers. They know when you'll be coming out after the TV. They spot you a mile away. They're waiting. Who goes to watch United against City with two replica Keen 16 shirts in a plastic bag? He says, I'm signing these jerseys for a guy and I'm saying, I don't want to be here all day. This other guy is pissed, so he calls me uh, a P. Rhymes with Rick. Uh, he doesn't uh, see that I'm just having fun with the dealer. I wasn't going to stand there under the tunnel at Old Trafford and explain, do you know what? You've just got the wrong end of the stick. I just said to him, look, you've had a few drinks. And that was me being unbelievably mature, which is unlike me. Clip goes on social media. People say I was angry. That's not me angry. There's plenty of levels beyond that. Trust me. That was a normal chat with a punter who's annoying me. That was nothing. That kind of incident. I have potential for 50 of them a day. Uh, which is, I guess, you know, a favourable enough retelling of the story on Roy Keane's part, but maybe yeah. that's the point of the interview. I don't know. Sorry, Sean, you were coming in. Oh, no, it's just, it's just one other interesting uh, cameo about, because as Dan and yourself were saying about his values, his privacy, obviously, even though he doesn't get much of them. But so a lot of people were surprised when he opened an Instagram account. So apparently it was on the, um, the behest of his uh, youngest daughter that uh, he opened it. And he has an amazing, he's only posted uh, 21 posts and he's followed by 1.8 million so that, I presume, uh, or that illustrates how popular he is. So. It's funny, though. Neville brought that up with him in the overlap. And Keane, who's a very, very intelligent person, was almost, well, is that good? Or like, what does that mean? Or what, like, what is playing the game? I don't understand. You understand all of this. But I, you I, understand. Yeah, and there's a performative aspect with some of some of this. Walsh, like, absolutely. Puts, Walsh puts that to him. There is a performative aspect to some of your punditry and he absolutely resists that notion. Now, come on, he's not oblivious. You've been on stage with him, Joe, right? You know that he can, he knows his power within a room. He knows the power of the one-liner. You see that little glint yeah. on occasion. He's but well aware of that. But he does like to maintain he's oblivious to this circus around him. I don't understand it. Maybe it's too embarrassing to admit that, you know, of course I know what I'm doing. You can't admit that, I suppose. No, and, he, and I mean, and why wouldn't he, like to some degree? I mean, he is, he, he part of the price for his popularity, I think as David Walsh says, like is that you you are everybody's business to some degree, you know, and that's that's part of what comes with it. And you can get ahead of it. And even the Instagram is a sense of, OK, well, then maybe um, and maybe it's just, as you said, as Sean mentions, it was his daughter who put him up to it, that maybe they're sick of the certain portrayal of him. They wanted to show a, a certain side. But there is a like, there is a certain poignancy with all this Roy Keane stuff. And he has done pieces. I'm trying to think there was a piece a while back in the um, in the Sunday Times a couple of years back where he spoke about how he'd go to maybe Wigan on a Saturday that he'd go to games yeah. to to uh, to avoid the rush like there is a line early on in the piece where you know driving into Manchester he occasionally passes Old Trafford I feel nothing he says it could be any stadium in the country see I'm not sure about that you know I'm not no. sure I'm not sure you know and maybe, maybe that's 100% the truth but uh, you see the ferocity when he speaks about Manchester United players sometimes and that comes from a place yeah. you know and I, I just okay maybe that's just a sense of so why do you think he's uh, saying I feel nothing when how could you not feel nothing you might, it might be good it might be I'm bad I'm not saying he wants him to be in tears and to be giving you sort of schmaltzy stuff about what it means to him mm. but I mean maybe he does feel nothing but it is sort of um, a place that clearly he was scarred by how it ended yeah. you know and really hurt by how it ended and if, if he was hurt by how it ended then it must have meant something in in some way. But I mean, 
this is part of it that he doesn't want to play the game to some degree. He, if he wanted to play it in a particular way, he could speak about how he loves the club and that it maybe work for him in some other way. But I was just going to say the poignancy about the the piece and it comes true. And there's this section that leans into his where he stands in the future because there isn't actually necessarily sometimes you read a big Roy Keane piece and there's loads of news lines come out of it like newsy angles and it's not really that type of piece it's just a really enjoyable read as Sean says with nuggets in it that little stories and stuff but there is that one line in there as you mentioned where you know maybe he maybe if he signs on with the punditry for another year that could be it for him with management now I still think Roy Keane will always be linked and mentioned with jobs forever I don't think he's ever just going to announce he's done well, maybe I'm pretty sure he said before a, if he ever went into may, it that would be a thing maybe there's an interim position an interim position that's, <laughs> that's, that's what we all want but he, but he says uh, I know I worked hard but lots of people worked hard but the breaks playing in the League of Ireland Forest, going to Man United even Celtic those were these were brilliant experiences maybe that was my time you know, which is Roy Keane's word and that, there is a sense that, of that that jumped out to me as well there is a sense that he resisted the punditry thing for so long he re- he wanted to be the serious uh, involved in football man and he still I mean I think in, in that, that overlap interview you, you saw a bit of the Roy Keane anger come out as he spoke about the people who keep getting jobs the people who get keep getting gigs in the championship they've managed multiple clubs and we know them there's some of the characters on the circuit that never seem to be at work for too long and yet Roy Keane hasn't got a manager's job in what over a decade now um, and I'm sure he's been offered a couple along the way but he, the fact is he hasn't taken one and I, I think if there was good jobs coming his way all the time he would have taken one by now and there is a sadness around that because you you know that that clearly that drive and that fire is still there to some degree but you also know and this is the one thing that I always find it hard to square when it comes to the the Roy Keane thing that like he's he comes across so incredibly well in this piece and so warm and you hear amazing stories about Roy Keane's generosity and you know instances where he's done stuff that complete you know completely out of the public glare, completely out of the spotlight, not for glory or anything, just out of pure decency. And yet the flip side is you would speak to people who've been in dressing rooms with him and people who you really like and would believe to be sort of really solid, um, you know, sort of trustworthy people who would have stories about how. It could be very hard going and there are times and there are probably reasons why he's struggled to get jobs subsequently yeah. you know and it's it's trying to square the two yeah. in some way just a few other quick pieces from it and, and Sean I'll bring you in then if there's any other pieces from it you want to mention so uh, not so long ago he watched a rerun of an old Manchester derby on Sky Sports Teresa came into the TV room what's wrong he'd been shouting at the television frustrated that United were giving the ball away it was 21 years ago it was the time when uh, Steve McLaren was in the technical area that afternoon the manager was attending his eldest son's wedding in South Africa Keane remembered his own sister Hillary's wedding he missed it because he wanted to play in a pre-season friendly and he goes on to make the point about anger which was interesting as well he talked about uh, DNA it was on the back of I suppose the punter disagreement and he talks about how uh, he says my dad was a good man but he had a short temper I'm sure we all have things in our DNA my son has a short temper nicest kid you'd ever meet I love him I'm unbelievably proud of him but he's got a short temper you can't pick and choose I want more of that emotion less of the other one which was um, Mm. kind of an interesting point and uh, he talks as well about death threats 
um, towards him and then they got a coded message uh, with a death threat that they were taking seriously, the guards, when he was um, publishing his autobiography in 02. Much more recently, when I was assistant to Martin O'Neill and away with the Ireland team, the Manchester police turned up in my home and told Teresa and the kids they'd received a threat to the family's safety. They called me and said they were taking it very seriously. They told the kids not to leave the house on their own and that we should all change our routines. And as David Walsh says, uh, being Roy Keane comes with a price. Price Is my name tarnished in boardrooms with a view to getting a job? Who knows? People say you have to play the game. I don't know that game. In all my years, there's nobody in the media I have a relationship with. That's a good thing, but people inside the game see it as a bad thing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you'd agree, Sean, he does come across very, very well, as Dan says, and uh, just a very likeable figure. And even in the interview with Gary Neville and the overlap, just unbelievable charisma. Oh, terrific, yeah. Maybe I've often thought about him that maybe he's he's too intense for his own good. You often... I've often heard this about uh, in GA that really talented players, you know, they always don't become good managers because they they cannot relate to the player who's not as intense or as talented as themselves because they obviously Keane did this, like he gave it everything on the field. That obviously not every player is going to be like him. So I, you know, it's just my view that maybe he didn't succeed as a manager because he couldn't take into account the fact that the players he was now managing weren't as uh, intense about the game as himself. Yeah. The fi- actually, going back to the actual interview, the final paragraph is, is it's a nice way to sign it off. It's uh, As Dan mentioned there earlier about him having a cup of tea and a bar of chocolate. So he's talking about when he's driving home, uh, obviously from London, that um, uh, he, he sometimes pulls over and stroke and goes for a cup of tea. And then, and then direct quote, I get my treat. I get my treat to myself, which is a cup of tea and a, and a Cadbury star bar. I laugh to myself. I'm not quite the George, Georgie best. Where did it all go wrong? It's not Miss World and 30 grand on the bed. Get me star bar and the tea, living the dream. Mm. Mm. It's that self-deprecation. Because I take your point on that you would hear stories about him from sources that you would trust and think are have a, are fair-minded and they would tell you about being in a dressing room and stuff. they don't yeah. sound great. Yeah. And yet... It's the self-deprecation that would bring you back. And he tells a story as well about being at that Ireland match. And he says uh, a friend teases him that he's paranoid and probably believes that when rugby players get down to scrum, they're really gathering to talk about him. And I guess the fact that his family all feel very, very comfortable taking the mick out of him. And even his friend there is comfortable just riffing on him and slagging him off. It does. I mean, it does show like it's a multi-layered character who can laugh at himself. Yeah, but you do forget as well when he did manage, he was in his thirties. You know, he was sort of in his late thirties. Yeah. And again, sometimes Keane was on this pedestal that I spoke earlier that he had he had this wisdom. Like you think that these people have it all sussed. No one has it all sussed. Yes. You know, but it's not possible to have it all sussed. Like, and Roy Keane ran the country. This yeah, kind of and, stuff, yeah, and 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 there was that sort of belief there, and it's like no, like he, I think that's in some ways a great realization that like he's human, and he and you, you see that side to his personality whereas I think maybe previously the younger Roy Keane post Saipan there was this almost cult of Roy Keane that he knew everything that he was perfect that he was you know his standards were were the, the right standards and that's it and I think sometimes now there is this thing that the reason it didn't work from a management was that people couldn't meet his standards it wasn't necessarily the case it was just that he, he wasn't able to to I mean, management of people requires different skills for different people. And maybe he just wasn't able to master some of that, you know, and I'd love to see him have it. You'd love to see him come back and have a gig 
somewhere else, you know, and, and to see would he be a more sort of mellowed figure now but you, you, you still sometimes suspect and you still see it when he when he clicks when he clicks into that gear that uh, when 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 the, that switch flicks off it's hard for him to pull back from those feelings and that might just always be the issue with him when it comes to that managerial gig um, but he's going to be it's clear he's here to stay in our TV screens anyway for some time and yeah. will remain part of the, the discussion of football forever Pages 8, 9 and 10 of the Sunday Times. Roy Keane with David Walsh. We have loads to get through and the clock is coming against us already in a big way. So we have Marcel Jacobs, who we should get to. He's the 100 metre Olympic champion in a moment. Uh, Ronan Mullen has uh, written about the horse racing situation. This is Senator Ronan Mullen in page 20 of the Sunday Independent. Dan, you've been watching with interest, I suspect, uh, the coverage of Paul Kimmage, David Walsh in particular over the last number of weeks what of uh, Ronan Mullen then what does he have to say about the situation he seems to have been involved with the Oireachtas committee yeah I mean it's 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 more as I said it's this thing that happens now and again where sort of a politician you know comes along and sort of does a piece on, on a particular subject and I mean say what yeah. you were going to say there oh, that, what, you took uh, it no 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 what were you going to say you think it's opp- opportunistic well it wouldn't be for me personally Fine. but um and I wouldn't be a massive fan, but like it's everyone has their opinion, and it still is. I mean, I do. I, I mean, you read through the piece, and I mean, it starts off with Ronan Mullen talking about how his his mom is big into the racing, and and um, how for her it's sort of jarring to have this thought now that all may not be as it seems. And I suppose for a lot of people might be feeling that way with some of the stuff they've read in recent weeks, particularly the Paul Kimmage piece last week, which was extraordinary. Um, that I mean, racing is very much you know embedded in a lot of people's lives in this country. You know, it, sometimes in a big way, sometimes in a very small way. Just to watch those races on a Saturday or on the TV or whatever, um, and you know, you want to you want to believe in everything. Yeah. And and uh, you know, in our, we we often in Ireland we celebrate how on a global stage our you know our equine stars and the people who train them and, and the jockeys who ride the horses are the world's best which they are um, but you know on one hand we'll probably we might talk about the you know the Marcel Jacobs piece now about the 100 metre champion and it's almost laced with Sean will have been over at the Olympics and it feels like you know across the Olympics any very good performance there's almost that asterisk that that is almost supplanted into people's head at the time and now this is happening around Irish racing now Um, when and and I follow the sport as you know very closely and uh, the commentary now from certain quarters is very very suspicious and racing has to deal with well, that now he, and, so you know. he says of his mother for instance who's a big racing fan it's not going to break her heart to discover that all is not innocent and pure in the world that she loves she's too long in the tooth she would say herself to think there aren't cheats in the sport but there are names coming up in our conversations now names of people who we've enjoyed and admired for years of whom we now say over tea at our table where there's no political correctness or libel laws that they might have been cheating he says the pity for Irish racing is that we are beyond the point where there is the danger of a reputational hit. The blow has fallen. And he mentions the raid on the yard at Monaster Evan and the running coverage of Paul Kimmage, which has started a process of questioning that will not stop. And he says of the recent Oireachtas committee, 
It showed too much deference on the whole to stakeholders who came before it. A mere six or seven hours of hearings with various stakeholders does not qualify a group of TDs and senators to give a clean bill of health to anything. And I thought that was a very salient and good point mm. because the Oireachtas Committee listening to interviews for a few hours and then rubber stamping everything is not really going to convince anybody. Yeah, the one line as well I was going to say, is it time for an independent statutory inquiry paid from the budget of horse racing Ireland itself funded from the 2% betting tax? And this is a, a significant point at the moment. And again, you know, Sean would be covering the sort of the boxing world and would be very aware of around particular sports elsewhere in the country where there's issues with governance, but also issues with funding and it would be commented on frequently, you know, that horse racing and also greyhound racing would benefit considerably um, from, you know, from state support, be it through sort of taxation means or whatever it might be. And that this is now, uh, this is where things get a bit uncomfortable. Um, yeah, at the same time, it's a massive employer and um, it's very much embedded, again, as I mentioned earlier, in the lives of um, people in various parts of the country. And I, and I think local politicians in those places would be very uncomfortable with any decisions that would impact on funding. Yet it feels like we are approaching something with Irish racing now where, where, where that state support is definitely going to come under um, increased scrutiny if there's not seen to be a proper examination of what has happened or what is happening here. Um, and that is probably the significance of the piece is is those points being raised more so than who's writing it or you know what they stand to gain from from being a spokesperson on the subject. It's if it's when that has been debated generally, um, that's the significance. Yeah. Uh, one other point he makes, he talks about the fact that of the horse boxes spotted at that yard in Monastery Evan at the clinic, 51 were unmarked. Were they mostly small timers or was there something else going on? The number plates might tell us more. And then that's when he goes on to make the point about an investigation. So what of this then, Sean? I mean, he makes the point that we're far past the point where there might be a reputational hit. Where is Irish racing at the moment? I think it's not in uh, in a great place. Um, just to... Uh, I, I just read or I, I read the report from the Oireachtas Committee. My my feelings about Oireachtas Committees would be uh, probably tainted by my experience with boxing, in particular in the last couple of weeks, where um, an Oireachtas Committee uh, had a hearing into into uh, what's going on in the IABA at the moment. And uh, I mean, I didn't think this, the senators, um, with due deference to them, managed to get to the to, to the problem at all because the format of it, I thought, was was very cumbersome. Basically, you're at, you'll get five minutes to to uh, ask questions on like regardless of how many, uh, that's your allotted time. It just has to move on to the next uh, uh, to the next person on the list rather than let the let one senator pursue a particular line of inquiry. And I mean, we had the far skill situation in boxing where somebody started asking about. Uh, jet skiing, uh, like which has absolutely nothing got to do with the subject. And the other thing about the Oireachtas hearing, I think it it suffered badly because Jim Bulger, who who sort of uh, set this debate in motion uh, last year with with his interview with, with Paul Kimmage, um, you know, he didn't appear before because I think he he wouldn't he couldn't be guaranteed that um, uh, privilege legal privilege for what he said. So uh, that obviously prohibited him from from uh, appearing uh, and I agree with Dan uh, and, and by the way on that that's an interesting 
situation all in itself. Because if you look, for instance, at Asim Rafiq, the cricketer who was before a select committee at Westminster this week, one of the reasons that investigation came to fruition the way it has is that there was parliamentary privilege and so he could speak freely. So it's interesting that Bulger couldn't. Well, that's what it looks like. Uh, well, um, Ronan Mundell said Bulger did not become before, that's the Iraqis Committee, the lack of legal privilege or what he might say, probably the reason. So I, I didn't know, I wasn't aware of that, that witnesses before Iraqis committees weren't guaranteed le- legal privilege. So that, yeah, that's uh, that's another weakness in the system. Mm. Uh, and just going to the, the funding issue, I, I mean, for... I'm not uh, as big a fan of racing as uh, Dan is, but I mean, just from looking at a lot of other sports are very jealous of the fact that horse racing, and to a lesser extent, uh, greyhound racing, uh, gets so much government funding, particularly when, by and large, most of the money, particularly like prize money, goes to a very select group of people. Uh, So I think uh, there is a case to be made at this stage. There is definitely a case to be answered about the about the doping, and I think there is a case to be made to set up uh, an independent inquiry funded by, by some of that uh, government money to, to look at what's going on. Uh, I was actually, and the other thing is that once Paul Kimmage gets his uh, teeth into a subject, he tends to pursue it to the very end. So uh, uh, I think the, there are serious questions to be answered. One of the bigger issues for race interpretation, Dan, is that this won't be clean. No pun intended. This won't be uh, an inquiry and it's sorted and we move on and draw a line in the sand. This will be drip, 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 drip in the media for the next number of months, if not years. I think the feeling is, yeah, that even just from following a lot of the coverage this week is that there's a feeling that this will this will move slowly generally. And, and sometimes that's to do with the, you know, the wheels of justice as well and and you know just how generally these inquiries move along look i suppose having previously been through uh you know a very different type of thing but the the the, the fei Oireachtas committee hearings and all of the stuff that came out of that mm-hmm. yet actually there's no real closure on that you know there's, there's sort of little legal things just trick trickling along and it's still going along at a sort of a a snail's pace to some degree um and that's obviously an issue that, that racing is dealing with at the moment, that it's really only early days. Like, you know, as you mentioned, the, or so the Ronan Mullen piece references, the, the 51 uh, boxes that were unmarked. And from listening to some racing stuff during the week and people involved, they're like, most boxes are branded in some shape. You know, you, you can't, if you drive up and down motorways near racetracks or whatever, you'll see most of these boxes are branded with a trainer's name or a, a you know, a feed company's name or something. Um, so there's so much more intrigue just so many questions left unanswered yet and there's there's a lot more to come on this So a really great piece I think Marcel Jacobs if you're not an athletics fan or you don't think you're too into the story you don't know much about Marcel Jacobs that is okay this is still a piece that you're going to find very good and it is interesting and we do, we do have to keep things moving here because the clock is going to kill us So uh, in effect he is um the Olympic champion, the 100 metres champion. I mean, it's one of those iconic medals to have, isn't it? Mystery of the Olympic champion who rose without a trace and then stopped running. This is Matt Lawton. This is Mark Palmer. This is page 20 and 21 of the Sunday Times. They travel over to Italy to the Stadio Pablo Rossi in Rome and they arrive. That's Marcel Jacobs' car, says a woman from the Italian Athletics Federation pointing to a sleek silver Mercedes. He's over there. 
in the opposite corner of the stadium, they write, a group of sprinters are training. You can watch from the side, but please stay off the track. So uh, the last time they say we saw Jacobs run was at the Olympic Games in Tokyo three and a half months ago. There was a sprint relay gold, but more significantly, a performance on August 1st that stunned the world when he succeeded Usain Bolt as the men's 100 metres champion. His victory was a shock because he was such a rank outsider. It was only this year that the, the then 26-year-old Italian police officer managed even to join the ranks of more than 150 sprinters who since 1968 have broken the 10-second barrier. He was so far off the competitive radar that he was the one participant in the Olympic final not in the Athletics Integrity Unit's elite drug testing pool. Before 2019, he'd specialised in the long jump. Um, it was in May where he finally broke the 100 metre, or sorry, the 10 second uh, barrier. He's um, El Paso born son of an American Marine with an Italian mother. And that's when he rose to a new level. That was in May. Victory in the 100 metres Olympic final seemed to surprise Jacobs, judging by his expression after storming clear of the field in a new European record of nine. seconds. He was unfancied, said one television commentator. No one was talking about him before the heats or the semi-finals. Outside of Italy, little was known about Jacobs back then. And so uh, the lads decide to head over to Italy to try and interview him because there have been five Diamond League events since the Olympics. Very lucrative. The world's big athletes turn up. They can get five-figure appearances. Lots of prize money. Jacobs, however has not run since. He hasn't appeared anywhere. His representatives are citing mental exhaustion. So the lads, um, Lawton and Palmer say, the Sunday Times has put in many, many interview requests. No joy. So they turned up at the stadium. They try to interview him, in effect, and he cites a prior commitment that day. And then they say, well, what about tomorrow? And he sort of says, yeah, OK, maybe tomorrow. And then the interview the following day doesn't happen. And in the end, they're... Uh, frustrated and they're told to start sending emails again and so they don't get their interview with uh, Jacobs and they introduce another character Giacomo Spazzini and he's a celebrated nutritionist and he was celebrated for making Jacobs leaner, stronger ultimately faster with a hybrid diet he put on muscle, 4 kgs of muscle he reduced his body fat by 4% well it turns out um, that Spazzini has been investigated allegations of fraud, the use or supply of drugs to alter athletic performance and the handling of stolen goods. It's called Operation Musclebound and it was triggered in 2019 and Jacobs claims he stopped working with Spazzini when he heard of the um, investigation in March of this year. Spazzini's more recent post suggested they continue to work together although Jacobs insists they didn't and there's lots of detail on the investigation into Spazzini which is Again, ongoing. It's called Operation Musclebound. And one of his partners was banned. He's known as Mr. Beef in the investigation. He had a four-year doping ban and he was a partner at this uh, clinic, which, by the way, is turning over 1.2 million a year. And he claims to have a 650-strong client list that is said to include professional footballers and showbiz stars. And they turn up at his office as well and try and interview him and don't get very far. That's the uh, broad outline, Dan. Really great piece, really interesting. I mean, and the 100 metres champion, it's a bit like the heavyweight champion of the world. It's one of these iconic titles and and nobody really had heard of Marcel Jacobs before this year. Yeah, I mean, he he was so far off the competitive radar that uh, he was the only one participant in the the Olympic final not in the Athletics Integrity Unit's elite drug testing pool. So that's where he came. He was previously... Wasn't worth testing. Yeah, he was previously, was it a long jumper previously? You know, he was in that 
in a different sort of discipline. And it was mentioned, I think, in the piece or around it that last month, you know, he didn't make the ten man short shortlist for the male World Athlete of the Year award. And a bit like you say there, you would expect like a hundred meter champion, a European one, um, to sort of be in there like a, a, a they, it's like sort of having a manager of the year thing here without the All Ireland winning manager or something. You know, you'd always assume that they would be they would be in the shake up by na- by nature and. Yeah, there is a lot in it. It's 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 sort of good work. I mean, it's it's like, you know, we spoke in the previous slot about racing. It's that sort of cloud of suspicion, and it does feel like um, this is the, this is the issue that sports deal with when it's reputational damage over a number of years, and in particular sports like athletics and you know cycling and other sports have had to deal with this. That you know someone wins something, and almost straight away there's sort of innuendo around it. And previously. In the, in the case of like high profile athletes like there was sort of painstaking journalism work whereas now people can just put out a tweet or two and go oh this looks a bit uh, I'm not sure about this and like that's not necessarily always fair either but what you have here is very clearly laid out Matt Lawton and Mark Palmer you know going there um, they've worked on this story previously with some of the links and they've tried to ask questions they've been knocked back and they paint a picture that is intriguing and it, as I said it poses a lot of questions they've done the work they've done the research they've done the they've sort of done the tracing to 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 to, to uh, ask questions about certain connections that need to be explored and answered and when you do have a case where someone comes a little bit from left field um, you know to win the title and hasn't raised very much subsequently it certainly invites those questions Um no, I don't know. I mean, I know Sean was over there. I don't know what the feeling on the ground was about Jacobs at the time. Um, I know there was, would have been some people say, well, actually, in his back catalogue, he had some runs which suggested the potential was there. But, um, yeah, there's, there's some lot of probing questions, I think, being asked here. Yeah. Sean? Oh, well, it was a huge shock <laughs> when, he, when he did win it because he came, he came from definitely left the field. He actually, like as you said there in your... Introduction. He was a, a long jumper until uh, two years ago, and then in the in the World Championships, yeah, he, that's when he did the kind of transfer in Doha in 2019. Um, he was eliminated in the heat and, and ran 10 10.20, which was you know mediocre time for a, a so-called world-class sprinter. And I, I mean, the bottom line is, in the hundred meters, you don't come from nowhere to win it. That's just that just doesn't happen. It's, it's it's a great fairy tale, and I suppose maybe once a century, you know, an athlete might come and do that. But uh, you know, there's huge question marks over it. And and this guy, the uh, Gianconi's uh, Spanini character, mm. uh, who was quick to jump on the bag bandwagon, and as you read out, he he, he boasted about him working with him. I mean, he is, as you say, under investigation now by the Italian authorities. So. Um, and then the fact that he didn't uh, that he didn't appear at any of the diamond meetings for you know where a lot of the money is to be made now he is by the on account of the piece he is a big national hero initially already and maybe he doesn't need to uh, go on the circuit to make any more money well, apparently uh, he's gone on their version of strictly come dancing and he's made a few million anyway yes exactly so maybe maybe it doesn't matter now i don't know what uh, I don't know how world athletics. I assume all these, all the world. I know they would have been tested, and uh, the athletes would have been tested in Tokyo. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what. 
out of competition uh, testing there is in Italy, but uh, it does, uh, and it's charitable, it's suspicious, shall we say, uh, because I, as I said at the outset, I just don't think that uh, in, in the 100 metres of all events, it's such a specialist uh, event that you just don't come out of nowhere and win it. It's, it's like, it's too much of a fairy tale. And sadly, I don't believe in, uh, I don't believe in fairy tales. Well, I'm sure he maintains his innocence. They never got the interview with Marcel Jacobs. So that's in the Sunday Times. Uh, just to mention, as we begin to wrap up, Olivia O'Toole, there's a really good interview with Mark Gallagher in the Mail on Sunday. So O'Toole has 54 international goals. She reckons she has about 130 caps for Ireland. Record keeping wasn't uh, all that meticulous for much of her career. She's 49 years of age now. And it's a really good piece ahead of the cup final this evening between uh, Shelburne and Wexford Youths, which is also previewed alongside the piece. So it's really good coverage in the Mail on Sunday. And uh, she talks about all sorts. She talks about look the difference in support for the women's game now versus when she was playing and effectively in the I think six cup finals she won sorry she's eight I do her disservice cup winners medals I mean getting any kind of crowd there was near impossible they were putting up posters themselves a day or two before the match you know or we had to tell family and friends where the game was on because it was the only way they'd find out it's obviously uh, much improved since then talks about growing up in Sheriff Street there was a serious drugs epidemic when she was growing up in the 80s in Sheriff Street it's nearly a miracle I'm here at all the only reason I'm here is because I had football, I played football, it was all I wanted to do, playing it on the street all the time. And she talked about being tucked up in bed on a Friday for training as opposed to being out. She said it saved me. Mm. The thing I hadn't realised, Dan, was she paid for she played for um, Sheriff Boys team between the ages of eight and fourteen. And in you know, she trained in her she changed in her own dressing room at Fairview Park, they changed in theirs and there was um, a, a match where there was a scuffle and she had um, injured a fellow player's nose and so the other team complained about her said she shouldn't have been there because she was a girl and Gallagher says typically O'Toole didn't take a line down supported by her club she took the case all the way to the high court girls are now allowed to play with and against boys up to under 16 level it's all because of O'Toole's tenacity she says we had to go all the way to the appeals court we got some of the papers involved but we got the rule changed that was 30 years ago it meant girls were allowed to play with boys yeah, no, significant. And it still remains a talking point to some degree. I mean, Vera Powell would be an advocate of, um, you know, girls training with boys sort of for as long as possible. And it, and it remains, you know, it remains to be, it's not, it's not always straightforward everywhere um, to do that. Um, but no, it is a really good piece, Mark, that it's sort of, he's gone off to do his own thing. There's, there's, there is coverage of the game today, sort of from media day, but he's gone for someone... You know, with a story to tell. I mean, and that is the thing about the growth of women's sport now. You 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 will see more stories from probably the trailblazers who operated in a different time, who weren't, who didn't have the same campaign. They didn't have a sort of twenty twenty campaign behind them. And you know, as Livia Till points out, you know, at the time of her career, there was no promotion. Same as with the cup finals. Uh, I remember we were playing Switzerland one time. This was international duty, mm. a very important qualifier. And the day before the match, some someone from the FEI came in with posters and flyers for us to hand out. This was 24 hours before kickoff. And and this is very much the story of her time where she played in cup finals in front of, you know, a handful of people, whereas this, ev- this evening's game is is in Tala. It was previously a sort of a curtain raiser for the, the men's cup final, a sort of a cup final day. They're doing something different with it now by making it its own event, which I think... 
on balance is probably a good idea um, but obviously people would have different views and say maybe they should get the chance to play in the Aviva but you see now uh, there's a double header coming up for Vera Pau's side um, and they're going to play in Tala and try and make that their own home and their sort I of think fortress. the Tala thing is working for them at the moment I think, I think it's the right way to go but I, I understand the argument of they should probably get the chance to play in the Aviva at some stage but I think in reality for where they are now it'd be great to build up an atmosphere that the demand for the games in Tala is such that you have to go to the Aviva rather than maybe having a slightly you know the Aviva when there's when it's nowhere near full it can be a bit cavernous yeah. and actually a bit flat and, and making Tala something a little bit more special I think is is in my mind is is a natural stepping stone well the atmospheres are great at Tala yeah I understand the counterpoint argument um, but I think I think this is probably the right way to go mm. from where they're at at the moment yeah uh, Sean, as we begin to wrap up then, page 22 at the Sunday Independent. Oh my God, this is complicated. Oh my God. I, I, my commiserations that you're trying to uh, navigate the weeds of this. Boxing rare rumbles on. So the Irish Amateur Boxing Association expulsions the latest salvo in long-running dispute over structures. Uh, you open by saying, Sean, in your piece, 25 members of the IABA were expelled last Tuesday. It's another episode in a seemingly intractable and exhausting row that has plagued an, organiza- an organisation which ought to be basking in the afterglow of Kelly Harrington's gold medal win at the Tokyo Olympics. You and your piece go all the way back to 08 when the IABA was really restructured and a board was put in place and there was a bid to try and make the thing more accountable and more business-like and, and Genesis, who obviously we would know um, post-Saipan and you mentioned that as well, they examined how boxing should be run and they made these recommendations and Sean reading between the lines it seems like ever since that move was made lots of people haven't liked it they haven't liked unelected people on the board there's the Billy Walsh thing and it seems as well I think toxic frankly is the word as ever and you outline you know these these 25 association members who were expelled and this is ahead of uh, votes coming up and there's an AGM in Belfast I mean most of us looking in without your expertise, just look at the IABA and we see boxing as the most successful Olympic sport. And we just think to ourselves, this should be just held up as, you know, the gold standard, really. And I saw John Tracy even at that Oireachtas committee hearing a couple of weeks ago, and he was just saying when it's been done in public like this, you know, you just know things are bad. You just don't want to be hearing about it. And he was kind of pulling his hair out. So I don't know. I suppose the short question is, are the IABA ever going to have their house in order? Or is there just always going to be rancour and disputes and politicking going on? Because it looks like such a mess at the moment. Yeah, I was reminded, I knew you were going to ask me about this. And I, I just thought, I saw a quote from uh, Michal, or a Twitter uh, tweet from uh, Michal Martin was asked a question on Friday about, uh, I think, uh, at the... Uh, at a press conference, <laughs> he was asked about why why were UK EU relations so bad, and he said, "In answer, he said jokingly, obviously, how long, how long, how much time have you?" <laughs> so I feel like that trying to explain this in, in a coherent uh, in a coherent manner. But to get back to what you asked me, Joe, yeah, unfortunately, it looks like that. I mean, the I suppose uh, uh, we didn't get to touch on it today. Tommy Condon has a piece about the transition that uh, rugby had from amateur to professionalism and how they haven't. I suppose this is a study uh, in the in the same thing as it how it has impacted on boxing because up until two thousand and eight, 
boxing was essentially totally amateur. And then uh, on foot off, uh, the then Irish Sports Council putting a lot of money into it and the establishment of the high performance unit. Uh, it has slowly gone professional and the transition has not gone smoothly, to put it mildly. And I suppose it's it's about the fact that the ordinary uh, rank and file members, uh, you know, particularly coaches and officials uh, feel disenfranchised under the current system because they, for instance, the coaches, I mean, they they basically train the young boxers, but when the young boxers come to 17 or 18 or maybe a bit older, when they win an elite title, they, they kind of move on to the high performance uh, and the, the club coaches don't have that much of a role. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is the administration. And again, it, the Originally, the IABA was organised along the same lines as the GA with county boards, provincial bodies, and a central council. And the central council was the supreme authority, and they they wielded a lot of power. Um, you know, they were they had the authority to pick teams for the Olympics, and there was a lot of p- political wrangling involved in that. But that all that all has dissipated over the years, and now there's a board of directors in there, and the unelected or the, the, the again the rank and file or a certain percentage of them feel that they, they have been sidelined basically and that it's now basically the the ceo fergal Carruth and the uh, unelected directors run the organization and they have all the power and that's basically that is the root cause of all the the problems mm. uh, the specific issue is that there was a, a rule passed in 2019 at the agm that two new directors would be appointed um and the board of directors haven't gone ahead with that, and that has that that's what sparked the current row in that the Leinster Council, the Leinster Council, the Dublin County Board, and the Connacht Council withdrew their support uh, from from the Central Council, uh, and in in retaliation, for want of a better word, the Central Council uh, basically suspended suspended the executives, and that was upheld by an independent panel, and so. Here we are now, but the, the what has actually made it more this particular round more toxic is that there's five five of the people who are five of the twenty five people who are suspended are actually candidates in the IABA elections, and their names are actually on the ballot papers uh, which have been distributed. And voting was taking place last night or last week. So right in the middle of this came the decision to suspend them all now. So now we're left with the situation ahead of the AGM next week, where uh, I assumably they. They cannot obviously be elected uh, if they're not members of the association. That that was another thing. The fact that they were uh, thrown out of the uh, thrown out of the organisation rather than suspended that has caused a lot of rancour. So that's it in uh, in a fairly tabloid form. What the the origin of the row is and where we're at at the moment. But okay. it is it looks intractable. Uh, Does you yeah. Know, unfortunately, but you know, having said all that, as you said. Despite all that, and which proves another point that we made over the years, we have, we, we what Ireland doesn't lack, or what Ireland has in abundance, is lots of talented boxers. Yeah, um, who are able to compete at the world level. So it's a shame that that the administration, in lots of ways, doesn't match it. Oh, it is absolutely. Well, you can read Sean's piece on page twenty-two of the Sunday Independent. We're not going to get to all the other pieces we had picked out. To be frank, Brennan Fanning, on the Irish women's performance yesterday. He said their celebrations covered over the cracks of low-quality rugby. The battle to get women's rugby up to speed on and off the field has a bit to go yet. I thought it was interesting. Read real cold-eyed view of the performance. Didn't think it was up to much, despite a um, brilliant showing from Kira Griffin on her 
uh, last ever international performance. And then Tommy Conlon from second rate to world class in just two decades. Rugby is now the dominant sport in Irish hearts and minds is the byline, which I'm sure Tommy's going to be hearing uh, plenty of online uh, for this. Dan, I know you wanted to rubber stamp that view. <laughs> uh, we don't have time to get into it, but uh, you, you, you agree in short is where uh, you are. That, that wouldn't quite be my view, but I think, you know... People can do whatever makes them happy, Joe. You just can't tell people what makes them happy. That's uh, a mature view. More yeah. mature view. I saw, Gavin Comiskey was on last week and said there was uh, two journalists not watching the uh, Ireland-New Zealand game. I think I might have been one of them, but I did go over and watch the end of the game. It's like, people are enjoying it, you know. I think, you know, you can't... You were one of the Luxembourg too. I was one of the Luxembourg too, but I watched the end of the game. And, it's, and spat in the ground no, afterwards no, I did and not. said, it's just I, a friendly. I did not have That's that. I heard that. I did not. Look, I heard that. I did not go with that view. Listen, I know you're you're a big rugby fan considering, you know, just some lucrative corporate work in it. You oh, know, so. here we go. <laughs> I can't call I can't call It was a friendly match. Oh, Sean's what he's seen. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Well, look. Tommy Conlon can turn off Twitter Tommy, for the afternoon. As I said, I think. the piece is insightful with an S, the subheadline insightful with a C. That's a slight difference there. Do you know what I mean? It's people sort of, the, the subheadline is what's annoying people, but uh, you can see quite a lot of commentary. But the piece actually is more so about how it will be professionalised yeah. itself. And I think, I think whatever your view on the extent of its popularity or otherwise, you have to acknowledge that they have developed world-class standards in what they do. And everyone has to look at that and, and ask questions about that. If this is rugby country, I'm leaving, says Dan McDonald, the Irish Independent. Thank you. Thank you. And Sean McGoldrick from the Sunday World. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, lads.